Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome on out here to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you here on this kind of blustery, cool morning. Uh, special welcome if it is your first time worshiping with us here at Res City, uh, whether you're doing so here in person or uh, watching online on YouTube. Uh, we're just thankful to have you here worshiping God with us together uh, on, this, uh, on this Sunday morning here. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into our sermon for the day. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless us as we... Um, go into this sermon today as we wrap up this series that we've been uh, spending our time in this fall, um, asking tough questions and uh, going to your, to your word and especially to your son uh, for your response to them. I pray that you give us wisdom through your spirit as we uh, engage in a heavy topic and that you would uh, light our path as we walk through your word um, in it, Lord. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So like I said, this is our uh, final sermon for the fall in this sermon series that we've been working through here. And we've been talking about, uh, the, the sermon series is, is called Rebuilding Around Jesus. And, and what we've been doing is we've been sort of uh, trying to you know, pay attention to the fact that a lot of people are finding themselves at, at a place where they're asking some really hard questions of their faith that they may be grown up in uh, for, ver- for various reasons. And uh, the phenomenon uh, that people like to use for this is called deconstruction. A lot of people are, are deconstructing uh, their faith, and that can have a lot of different sort of degrees to it. It can just be really small ways, or it can be some pretty large ones as well. And so we thought, let's spend some time. Let's talk about uh, deconstruction. Let's talk a little bit about ways in which it's good that God can actually use it to grow us uh, more, and and then some things to avoid, some pitfalls to maybe look out for as we do it. And we've been spending time going uh, through different topics and spending some time like taking a hard look at them, maybe deconstructing them a little bit, but then always trying to rebuild back around Jesus specifically. That's sort of been our hope. Um, Not just in this series, but really as a church, that really is our, our number one value, is go to Jesus, start there, build around him, and follow him where he leads us. Now, I continue to amaze myself, uh, I feel like, on, on the ways in which I can take a small amount of information and, and run with it, and a lot of times find out I, you know, I maybe should have waited a little bit more, I should have uh, tried to, to maybe spend some time better understanding the thing uh, that I ran with before I had to stick my foot in my mouth uh, to sort of uh, repent of that um, or to change my mind. Um, and, you know, it could, be, it could be big things, it could be like a friend you had a miscommunication with and you got really upset or hurt by them, and, and you found out, oh, totally misunderstood what you were saying. It could be much bigger. Uh, countries have been invaded uh, for stuff like that. So uh, anyway, it, it's, it's important for us to kind of understand something really well before uh, we react to it. And today in, in the series, uh, as we kind of wrap up, I want to talk about some, some big topics, heaven and hell. And um, I think it's important for us as we approach these today to really try to leave our baggage at the door. Um, there's a lot of conversation. If you've grown up in the church, you hear a lot about these two topics. Um, obviously, they're connected, but they're different too. You can separate them out. Um, and what I want you to do is, is maybe you have asked some hard questions about these topics in the past. Maybe you, you, know, you, you found yourself sort of pulling away from what you've received in a certain way. And I just want to kind of just say to you, don't, don't deconstruct a caricature. And, and today what I really want to do is try to dig in biblically to what Scripture says and what Jesus says about these two topics. Um, and so let's just make sure as we, we approach them, uh, we're understanding them in their depth. Because there is, I think, a lot of confusion around these two topics, um, both in, a, in the culture that we live in and then also the church. Uh, and I think a good place to kind of go for just, you know, this is what like the, 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 the cultural understanding of these two uh, things are. And it's in a TV show called The Good Place. Now, this is a show a lot of people have watched. I know Julie and I watched it. Actually, it was a couple years ago where we, uh, um, uh, 2018, April, remember you guys, we had like an entire weekend where it just literally did not stop snowing. Right, and anyone who just moved here, like, moved away immediately afterwards. Right. Well, uh, this this weekend we had Julie and I had like nothing to do. We literally couldn't leave our house, and so we started watching The Good Place, and we got really into it. We watched the whole first season in that weekend, uh, if I remember right. Um, and so, kind of here's how heaven and hell are presented in the show. They're not called heaven and hell. They're called the good place and the bad place. But you know that that's what they're, what they're playing on. And I do really think that what they're taking is just kind of the cultural sort of ideas that we've kind of built up as a society and that are really a part of the church as well to sort of help them kind of come to their interpretation of it for the show. 
So it's like you wake up in a waiting room, and then it's decided that you're, which place you're going to go to, whether it's the good place or the bad place. And um, it's like we're in, we're in a physical space now, like in our embodied lives, but when you die, you go to some spiritual place. And where people end up at the moment of their death is sort of their final destination. And so right now, literally, if we overlapped time in our physical space here and in the spiritual place where heaven and hell are, you know, are existing, at least in this idea, um, people are already in their final destination for kind of all eternity, right? And there's a running concurrent with those things. And so that means for you know, people who are in the good place, the loved ones might be watching over us. Um, and, and for us, the goal is to leave this space, to leave earth, and to go be with our loved ones again someday in this spiritual place, right? That has ramifications for how we view this world, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, but I, I think that's typically how we think about it. And when it comes to what heaven is or the good place, uh, uh, it's, it's a kind of like, you know, everyone has a different idea, but oftentimes it's sort of like a suburban paradise, right, where everyone's super friendly and they walk their dogs and say hi to each other every morning and there's lots of ice cream shops and, and different things like that, right? It's just kind of like, you know, very, very, uh, you know, that's the best we can imagine, right, is like dinner parties every night and, and whatever. Like, that's the best we can imagine that heaven might look like is sort of a really good version of, you know, what, what a lot of people consider to be the, the best, you know, spots on earth now. And hell is this sort of like torture chamber, right, where God or demons, uh, you know, depends on kind of maybe how you read it, but they delight in sort of actively pouring wrath endlessly on people for eternity. Uh, like in the Saw movies, right? Just like, that's hell, right? It's just kind of constantly for eternity. You're not allowed to die. Um, you're, you're kept alive uh, only to, you know, bring you continual pain for the rest of your life, right? And it, God is very active in that or, or he gives you over to some demons and like they're, you know, in charge of making sure you're tortured for eternity. And the gospel sort of fits into this frame a lot of times now as Christians. We kind of ap- uh, apply the gospel to it and we say, um, we just got to make sure we get to the right destination. Like that's the goal here, right? It is to make sure that you end up in the right space at the end of time. And that's kind of really what the gospel is all about, now, it might surprise you to know that most of that is, is unbiblical, okay? Like, it, it's kind of taken more from Platonism than it is actually from, from Scripture. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit. Um, you might be surprised that, like, in no letter of the New Testament is hell ever a sort of central part of it. Um, it's for sure it's there. Like, it, it's a theme uh, in, in some letters, but in some places it doesn't show up at all. Uh, and including like the book of Acts, if I'm not mistaken, the word hell never shows up in there, despite the fact that you have a lot of people going and sharing the gospel with other people, right? But at no point do any of them say, hey, there's this place called hell, you're going to go there if you die, and here's the way to avoid going there. That's never how it goes uh, in the book of Acts. Now, if you came to faith through some sort of presentation like that, I'm not knocking it at all. God can and does use that as a way to sort of bring people to faith. But I think it's okay to ask the question, is this sort of uh, the point? Is this sort of the right way we should understand these concepts? Or is there maybe more to it or a different way to approach it when we really look at it according to Scripture? And so today what I want us to do is to understand how Jesus and the Bible writers uh, sort of view God's plans for his world and why God has plans for his world that extend beyond death itself. All right, so that's what we're going to do this morning is kind of dig into some actual scripture passages. Um, But before we do, I actually want to just have a couple of principles, okay? So kind of frame how we approach this sort of conversation uh, and these scriptures before we actually get to them, because I think that's important. We have to kind of um, ask ourselves, you know, how are we approaching these texts before we do because of the culture that we live in? Okay, so the first one is this. The first sort of principle for us is that it's good for God to do something about evil. Okay, it's good for us to have this belief and this understanding because God doing something about evil is his justice. And when we talk about his ultimate justice, that's when we start to talk about these ideas of heaven and hell. All right, so we have to understand God's, God's justice, God doing something about evil in the world. And uh, to a lot of people, I know the idea of hell, the idea of God's justice sort of seem maybe silly or outdated, 
right? We kind of don't like, we, we kind of think that view of God is maybe an old medieval one, like a God who's cranky and angry at people for, you know, doing bad stuff. And so the idea of him sort of sending him to hell just seems like kind of outdated. Like maybe we, we've kind of moved beyond that, right? As a society, we, we move beyond that, right? We don't see the need for a lot of that sort of thinking about who God is. And so usually when we talk about God's justice now, we're talking about it in a bit of a negative light. It's kind of the parts of the Bible we like to shy away from. We're a little bit uncomfortable with it when we read about it in the New Testament or in the Old Testament or, you know, wherever we're, we're kind of approaching this. And, and so the way we frame the question a lot of times is like this. Why would a good God not just overcome his angry impulses and be more forgiving and tolerant? How can he be good if he acts in anger and not in love towards people? Right? That's, that's kind of what we think of a lot of times when we approach this topic. Now, this is what we value. The re- I think the reason we have this is because it's what we value in ourselves and in other people. Right? And we try to do it ourselves. Like, if we're honest, like, we would love it if God were a good Minnesotan and he was just like an all-powerful neighbor who would help us out with stuff like, you know, snowblowing our yard or our driveway out whenever we needed it. And he didn't really tell us when he was upset with us. We would kind of, you know, it would be okay if he kind of had that sort of, uh, you know, passive-aggressive Minnesota nice approach to people. And hell, you know, would actually just be telling people, you, you know, uh, that, that they offended you or something, sharing your feelings, right? Um, okay. But as with so often, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater here? If that's where our starting point is, that's kind of where we're landing the plane maybe, or we're, we're at least tempted to land the plane. Because let's pause to consider where we're coming from, okay? We're really good at asking questions about sort of the biblical culture, right, or, or other cultures. We're really quick to sort of apply that analysis to other cultures, but we're really not very good at applying it to ourselves, right? It's kind of subtle how, you know, we often approach the Bible and we think, well, God and Jesus, they probably are just like me, right? That's probably how they think about everything. While not understanding the fact that me is a product of the culture around me, right? So we have to understand the culture around us to sort of understand why we have the certain views we do or want to put on God and Jesus. And this is where having like perspectives from other cultures is really helpful to us. Because it reminds us that uh, like other cultures, other people can have different understandings of things based off of how sort of they've been formed by the, the culture around them. Okay, we, we say we like the input from other cultures, right? We want to listen to other perspectives, except when they like, you know, are different than our own, right? Then we're like, ah, maybe not, not so much, okay? But this is where I think it, it's helpful because judgment seems like an overreaction when we think about ourselves and people like us in our mostly pretty comfortable and privileged world that you know, a lot of us have occupied for most of our lives, right? Although we are pretty comfortably not experiencing the consequences of sin and injustice in the world, okay? Like we, most of us have probably grown up in a place where we don't see the ugly side of the world on a very regular basis. If we do, that's going to shape how we, you know, what we want out of God and what we hope that he would do in the world, in, in a world like where we've grown up in mostly comfort and we've mostly only seen really, you know, com- comfortable and privileged side of life, a God who judges is kind of a threat because he holds us accountable for stuff that we, you know, we think is actually not so bad maybe. But if you don't live in that world, if you've grown up in a, in a different place, if you, don't, if you haven't grown up in, in sort of comfort, if you've lived a lot of your life as a victim to or a witness to evil, a God who does something about that isn't a threat, he's actually a God who listens, okay? And, and, and I think uh, Esau Macaulay, he's, he's a black Anglican priest who, who wrote a book called Reading While Black. I think he unpacks this well. And um, he has one chapter in the book called What Do We Do With All This Black Rage? Yeah, that's the, the chapter of the book. And he recounts his own rage along with rage in communities of people like him, other black people. And the list is long, and you can probably guess a lot of it, what's there, right? Enduring slavery, enduring Jim Crow, sort of uh, the, the, the deaths of many major figures within the community, um, the lynchings, the deaths of, of young black men, um, and, and more. And this is a national conversation we're having right now. A lot of us are sort of becoming more aware of this being sort of like the, the, the rage that is there for a lot of people uh, in the same communities as Issa McCulley. 
And I know maybe uh, one video I thought that was really eye-opening for me that came out a couple summers ago in the wake of the George uh, Floyd uh, protests um, was a, a video of an older black man and a younger black man. And I forget the city it was in. Um, it was recorded on Facebook. It, it's, you can still find it. Um, and the older black man is talking about uh, just how tired and angry he is. He just kind of keeps repeating how tired and angry he is. And you can see it. You can sort of feel it through the screen as you're watching it. And he says, ain't no one coming to protect us. Uh, he goes on, at this point, I'm ready to die for what's going on. You can just sense the, the weariness that he has because of what he's experienced his whole life, of feeling like things are not right in the world. Okay? And, and Isa McCulley, he talks about the sort of black reading of the Psalms that sort of resonate with the rage and grief at evil that the writers of the Psalms are also portraying. Um, he says that I think, in a lot of ways, the black community gets these in a way that other communities don't always. And he has this, this quote about Psalm 137 in particular. Psalm 137 is more than a personal memory of an oppressed people. It is a call for God to remember. Okay, that's what the, the psalm is asking, that God would not forget what had happened to Israel, but that he would remember it, that he would re- respond to it. Not to forget, not to sweep it under the rug, not to say that Israel is overreacting and actually things are pretty good and it would be a bad thing if I responded in justice in some way, right? Not saying that a God who forgets is a good thing, right? Because so often when we find ourselves wanting that and desiring that out of God, we just kind of want to get off the hook, right? Uh, You know, that's a lot of times that we would hope for a God who doesn't judge evil because we're looking out for ourselves a little bit more as opposed to seeing it as a way that God remembers and responds, that it's his sort of solidarity with people who know in their bones that the world is not right and it has to be set right, to hear and to know and to remember, And so if that's your starting point, if that's where you're coming from, it's fair to take that question we asked a little bit ago and spin it the other way. Would God be good if he didn't do something about injustice and evil? That's how a lot of people are going to ask that question because of their experiences. Now Esau McCulley, he could have just left it there. Right? A lot of people would have probably left it there. But he goes further to dig deeper into the Psalms themselves. And here's what he says. The miracle of Israel's witness is that the Old Testament could imagine something beyond blood vengeance. Okay, so he doesn't just say the Psalms are just asking for God to come and do to Israel's enemies what they had done to Israel. But he's ask, he says that there's something beyond that that, that, that they're, they're asking for. All hope is not in God avenging evil, just turning over the tables, just taking the wheel of those who are experiencing injustice and spinning it the other way so now that they're on top and they can sort of take the same role, but something else, something much deeper than that. And that's what is a transformation of our hearts, making us right so that the world around us can also be made right as well. A restorative, sort of transform, transformative justice of who we are that takes sinners, that takes people who, 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 who oppress others, who, who do injustice, who, who commit evil acts towards one another, and, and remakes them. And this is where we get to the idea of heaven. Okay, this is what I think when we talk about the biblical idea of heaven, we're talking about God coming and making the world right again. That's a direct line, I think, to those two themes. And, and nowhere is this more clear than something that we pray all the times as Christians. And at Red City, we pray this once a month. We actually did a whole sermon series on this a few years back, and that's the Lord's Prayer. Think about what we're praying when we pray this prayer, okay? This is from Matthew 6, 9 to 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So think about how Israel, or, sorry, heaven is being um, framed here. We're not asking, help me get out of here so I can go to some place that is heaven where you're at right now. I can escape it. It's asking instead for, to allow heaven to come to earth. Allow earth to look like where your space is, where your will is done, where your kingdom is the one we're living in. Let your rain come and breathe new life into the world. Let earth be like your space where your will and your rain are everywhere 
which means justice is everywhere, which means sin is, is pushed to the margins, right? As a po- and instead, we are living in a world that has been set right. Now, Jesus' radical claim, the whole reason he tells people to pray this prayer is that he believed that this was uh, happening in and through him. Okay, so when he, ta- when he talks about people praying this prayer and then says, live this way, he believes that as he, he proclaims this and as people repent and believe and respond and follow in the, the steps of Jesus, live according to the kingdom, that it, it is true. Heaven is, in a sense, coming to earth through all of that. And, and those who are repented and, and believed in him were sort of uh, participating in that. And this leads to our second principle here. Okay, that it's good for God to restore his world, not abandon it. Okay, often uh, we talk about um, right, heaven as something we escape this earth from, right? which says a lot about how we, we view what God must do with, with things that are broken in his world. Right? Uh, it it kind of shows our view is that, well, if something is broken or messed up, the goal is to get people out of there, to sort of pull them away from it, to kind of call it a lost cause. And that's our view a lot of times of what will happen to earth when we talk about going to heaven, dying and going to heaven. Earth will be destroyed. We'll live in the spiritual paradise that people are apparently are living in right now. But that is not what God's character actually is. Instead, his character is to see something that's broken and to, to come and restore it, to make it right again. In the past, we've used um, uh, something called, to kind of describe this, uh, it's, it's, it's a Japanese pottery called kintsungi, all right? And what it is, is like you, you have a pot or a bowl or something like that that breaks, and, and in, instead of just throwing it in the garbage and making a new one, there's actually a lot of beauty to be found in taking this broken pot and, and using actual gold to sort of uh, bring it back together again. And to turn it back into a pot or a bowl like it was supposed to be, where its scars are still there, but now they're filled with gold, and it's sort of celebrated because it's been, it was broken, and now it's been remade again. And that's the character of God that we find when we talk about heaven. The cross is not an escape hatch for us. It's a means for making the world right again, to make earth more like heaven. Now, the implications for this are really large. It means that we matter to God— that we're not lost causes, it means that other people matter to God and that they're not lost causes, right? Because God's character is one that comes, restores, and sets things right again. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that means, you know, we're going to follow in the footsteps of him of trying to set things right again as well, recognizing that we have been set right ourselves in our hearts as the Spirit inhabits us as we respond to believe in Jesus and we walk and follow him. And just a bit of a side note, but I think an important one to, to, to talk about is the church is supposed to be, right, this place where people are following after Jesus, right, where the Spirit dwells. Like, if that's, you know, what heaven coming to earth looks like, then the church is supposed to be the place now, at least in a measure, where we're experiencing heaven. And we did a whole, you know, sermon on this early in the year. We called it In St. Paul as it is in heaven. We want to have that sort of mindset for us ourselves as a church that we are, you know, truly living this out as best as we can. And, and because when we do that, then we, can, we are starting to sort of experience heaven in, in our midst. So, so I know recently I was talking to someone, we were talking a little bit about, about shame and just how, like, it can be hard to rid ourselves of feelings of shame. We can spend a lot of time praying to God, right? And maybe, in the, you know, in the moment we can feel good about it, but sometimes that shame doesn't go away. Now, I think that, it, you know, we know, we believe that Christ doesn't view us by our shame, and, and the hope is that when we go to heaven someday, we won't feel defined by any shame that we have. But in the present now, the church, I think, is supposed to be the place where we tangibly feel that, right? Where we can come into a body of people, you know, having, you know, wearing our faults and our shames on our sleeves, not having to, uh, to hide them from one another. And, and despite that, we're treated as if we have value, that we're accepted, that we're welcomed, not by our shame, but instead uh, by the love of Jesus, And we're not going to feel that in a lot of other spaces in the world, but the church is supposed to be the place where we live as if heaven is actually here, even though it's not quite yet. Okay, and and that's why it's important. The church, I'm I'm sure you guys are like, yeah, Joel, that sounds great, but the church sucks at doing that a lot of times. Okay, and it's true. The church really drops the ball on this in a lot of ways, and that actually is supposed to make our hearts long even more for the real thing. 
Okay, the church now is just an anticipatory body that is waiting for God to come and make right, you know, in fullness what he started now in Jesus. It comes in bits and pieces now, but eventually the Lord's prayer will finally and fully be answered by Jesus. And that's what Revelation talks about here in this sort of very famous passage, a sort of you know, foundational one, I think, for us as Christians in understanding what it looks like uh, when we talk about heaven. So this is what the John, who is the, pro- the prophet, the seer, who is recounting to us his vision in the book of Revelation. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with mankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's been made right. Okay? At a moment of restoration, God will finish his project of making his world right again, establishing a city that comes and transforms the, the place we're sitting in right you know, this moment on earth, it will transform it and make it God's space where his kingdom has come, his will has been done, there is no more rage, you know, uh, no one is forgotten here, right? To the point that death itself has lost its thing. We've lost our need to fear it as a tool to be used against us or as a means to our own destruction for ourselves. And we are given the barest of sketches of this, right? It's important to keep that in mind. All we're ever given is just, I mean, as we can barely see it, but we know, uh, you know, at least that it comes in, in its fullness through Jesus's work, and that it's going to be a redeemed creation, right? Uh, it, it's again, it, it seems like it's an actual city, right? It seems like it, it, you know, it, it will have a lot of overlap with what we experience in the here and now on Earth. I imagine, you know, we'll have roles within it, jobs, perhaps. Like we will work together still, just like God intended when He created the Earth, but now perfected now brought to its sort of fullness, the design that it always had and, and, and made so that the things that had undone it, had made God's world not right, are no longer a part of it. That's what we're waiting for. Okay, now how does hell fit into this picture? Right? That's, I haven't talked much about hell, but I, I've tried to lay the groundwork here for us before we actually get into the text that talk about hell itself. Now, now, judgment is not something that Jesus is afraid to talk about, all right? We, a lot of times we can talk about Jesus as, you know, just going around and he's very friendly. He never says anything hard to anyone. And uh, that's not true. He does talk about judgment. He's not afraid to talk about what God is doing about evil in the world and actually calling out specific people uh, in regards to that, okay? And he talks specifically at times about judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem, all right, it's a lot. He talks a lot of times about that, and he's anticipating something that happens a few decades later, uh, where the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is is kind of um, uh, sieged by uh, by Rome. But he also talks about something that extends beyond that into the future. We find this in places like in Luke twelve four to five. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, the word hell that Jesus uses there is actually a a specific word that refers to a specific historical place, and that's called Gehenna. Here's an actual picture of it from today. It's just a slope um, outside of the city of Jerusalem that you can still go and visit. Um, Literally, the word Gehenna means the Valley of Hinnom, um, and and, it's, and it's, it's got a history to it. It's not just any slope, okay? He's not just referring to some random hill outside the city. Jesus is, is intentional with what, what he talks about here, okay? So earlier in Israel's history, some kings of Judah had sacrificed children in fire there in worship of some, some idols, some, some gods of other nations around them. This was an, an abhorrent practice to Yahweh that he was not okay with, 
right? And he calls them to account through the prophets. And the place where this had happened became, uh, sort of became to seen as unclean or cursed, right? Because of what had taken place there, this sort of horrific, almost unspeakable action that had, had happened there, like that, that stuck with this place. And the prophets condemn the area. Jeremiah, for example, says, like, you need to start calling this place the Valley of Slaughter, okay, because of something that else is going to happen in the future um, to, to Israel when Babylon comes. It's like a lot of you going to, a lot of dead bodies are going to end up in this cursed, unclean place. And as time develops, even outside of biblical literature, in the rabbinic um, or in uh, sort of the apocalyptic writing that is also being written around the, around the same time generally, um, it became kind of well-known as, as associated with this sort of fiery judgment of God against evil. So an example from 2nd Esdras 7.36, also sometimes called 4th Ezra, uh, the lake of torment will appear and across from it will be the place of rest. Hells, Gehenna again, furnace will be displayed and across from it the delightful paradise. And eventually by Jesus' time, uh, at least a lot of historians say, it, it operated as sort of a stinking massive trash heap. Uh, where things may have been burned, sort of to, you know, to literally kind of talk about the image. But either way, that, that's, how, that's what this place was now. So when Jesus is, is talking about this, he's, he's picking up on a, on a very Jewish idea. He's not making anything up here. He's talking about something actually that probably all the people around him already sort of believed, but he's kind of reaffirming it. And what he's saying is, along with all the other uh, Jewish thinkers of his time, is that God will one day sort out evil uh, and good for good. And, 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 and when that judgment takes place, some will end up in a, a, a Gehenna-like place. Um, and, and it makes sense when we talk about sort of the trash idea, I think, there, is that sin so often leads us to after worthless things and uh, to treat them as ultimate, even though in the grand scheme of things, they're just ultimately, compared to God's glory coming, they are ultimately worthless. They ultimately are trash or garbage. And so when people do this, they're sort of turned over to this worthlessness, and they end up in the dump. And this is God's judgment here. So when we go back to Revelation, I think we actually find a really good sort of parallel with the picture that Jesus is presenting here when he talks about Gehenna. Remember, the city has come, and the the victorious, that's the word that John uses, um, will inherit it or take up residence in it. All right? And, And so continuing on from where we were before, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the vile... The murderers, those who commit sexual immorality, those who use drugs and cast spells, um, the idolaters and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This will be the second death. So their their share there, the Greek word is sort of a a word about dividing or partitioning things, kind of of creating one group and another. And, And again, in verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. This is the city. Nor anyone who does what is vile and deceitful, but only those who are registered in the Lamb's scroll. So we have a restored city that comes, a new Jerusalem itself, that's actual language that uh, is being used by John here, coming to the old earth uh, to remake it. Okay? And that will be heaven, is this restored city of Jerusalem. Um, however, some, just like, uh, will remain outside of it. The, you know, the picture still kind of uh, holds. Uh, uh, outside of the city, there's a space for those who are sort of not a part of what God is doing in the world. They're outside the city. They're in this place that has sort of been associated uh, with, um, with God's judgment. And the language of fire here, I think, is, is intended to uh, portray that, this idea of judgment against it. So here's a question that I, I wonder, that I, I, I would guess some of you are asking. If God's character is redemption, uh, you know, what happens when some resist being made? I think that's the question we should be asking here, right? If God's character is redemption, is making things right again, what happens when some resist that? What's, you know, what do we do with that? Does God forget this, and especially the consequences? And they know he does remember it, and he deals with it. Now, most examples in the Bible of God's judgment in practice looks like this. Not all places, but the majority of them for sure look like this, where God gives over a subject to their ultimately worthless desires. Okay, that is very often talked about as God's judgment, is letting them experience the consequences of them sort of chasing after the thing that they've desired so badly over God himself. 
So an example, these kings of Judah we talked about, the ones who made Gehenna famous for sacrificing children outside of it. Here's what actually happens to them. They're under God's judgment, but if we look at what happens through the prophets and historically at it, is that there are these sort of political powers in the region. You've got Babylon, you've got Egypt, and they're always doing you know, what nations, you know, great uh, empires do. They're maneuvering against each other. They're trying to gain you know, the, the edge over one another. And geographically, Israel's right in the center of all this. So they kind of get roped into all of these sort of big-time uh, political games, that, uh, especially at this time, ba- uh, Babylon and Egypt are playing against each other. They get mixed up in it, and what they do is they sort of make alliances with some of these other nations at different points and try to rely on them to keep them safe rather than God himself. And that means sort of giving themselves over to the worship of these gods a lot of times. It means just relying on them more than God himself. And God's response is to just give them over to that and let the consequences of that play out uh, from them. And say, if you want to pretend you're one of these nations, fine, you can play the game with them, but this is what happens when you do. And that's what happens when Babylon comes in and pulls them out of there uh, and, and brings them into exile. God does not protect them from the consequences of this. And so Jerusalem itself becomes a hellhole, pun intended, when Babylon comes in and and wreaks havoc on the city itself, okay? God's judgment, God's justice against them is to ultimately just let them be crushed by their own desires. That's what happens when we talk about God's judgment. And this fits very well with Paul when he talks about God's anger or wrath in Romans 1. And he uses a word three times in Romans 1, the second half of it. Uh, uh, it's, it's, in Greek, it's paradidomi. And what it means, and this is how it's translated, is God gave them over. Okay, so it opens up by saying this is God's anger, God's wrath in the world. And continually, what that looks like is God giving people over to their desires. So we see that God's uh, punishment is not active, it's actually very passive. It's him delivering over, handing people over to these things that they have wanted so badly. It's him not protecting them from the consequences of those things. It's him saying, if you want to commit wholeheartedly to seeking out what is ultimately trash, to resist being remade, then you can, you can live in the dump then. That's, 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 what you, that's what you want to do. That's what's going to happen. And, and I think what, what the Bible says here is, 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 in reality, some will be uninterested, un, uninterested in being restored or redeemed. When God comes to set the world right again, right up to the moment of restoration, I think, at least personally, that's how I read it. Uh, and we, we know in Romans 14.10, uh, Paul, a little bit later in the book of Romans, Paul says, like, uh, we're all going to go before the judgment seat of God. Okay? We're all going to have a chance to sort of uh, state our case. And at that moment... It appears that what is being said is some will tell God, some will tell Jesus, I'd rather not live in this world where Christ is Lord. Okay? Now, I, would, I hope, I hold out hope that far less than we would imagine would, would make that choice in that moment. But uh, it, it seems to, uh, to me, as, as I read this, that, the, that we're being told that at least some will make this choice. And what Jesus will say in that moment is, depart from me, I never knew you. This is what he says in Matthew 7 and in 23 and in Luke 13, 27. Jesus tells people this final judgment. His wrath or his judgment is to say merrily, just no, you, you go ahead, go over here then. Go over here then if that's what you want. And God honors their request. As they say, like C.S. Lewis says, he, he says to these people, okay, thy will be done then. Your will be done. If that's what you want so badly, you can have that thing. I'm going to give you over to that. I'm not going to protect you from it. I'm going to let you take responsibility for yourself. And this, I think, is hell. A place outside the city where people have ultimately chosen to be, having no real desire to be inside this new, restored, made right world that God has created. And finding their desires for seclusion from God and their unwillingness to be remade honored. And then what happens is in, in that space, sin starts to take hold and, and self-destruct upon itself. Okay? Think about this. Think about the, the misery of someone who is so hardened to some path, so hardened to getting their own way, so unwilling to turn 
right? We know people like this. We've seen examples of this. People who are bitter, uh, yet they're unwilling to do anything um, uh, to, to turn from their path, to maybe cling to power, to a drug, to a relationship, to a way of life, to a grudge. Right? We've seen politicians and, and celebrities ruin their careers because of stuff like this. We've seen families torn apart because they're unwilling to give up grudges against one another. Uh, we've seen people destroy relationships uh, um, because they're so committed to their dreams or something that they're willing to sacrifice everything around them, even as they destroy themselves, right? And that's a, that is a, you, you look at people like that and you can see they're miserable, Right? You can see that they're not actually finding happiness, but they're so committed to it that they're willing to turn from everything else. Okay? Uh, they're never satisfied. They're always looking, but they're unwilling to turn, to change from that course. Burning with anger, but refusing the medicine. I think this is God's judgment. I think this is what it'll look like. To withdraw, to allow these people's hearts to become even harder, and to let sin take its natural consequence, to let them live with that, to not protect them from it, as he so often does oftentimes in his grace. And again, while we might be shocked to learn some people would decide this, the Bible anticipates that at least some will. Though how many, we, we don't know. And I think we need to be really cautious and careful to try to talk like we do know what this will look like and what decisions people would make in that situation. That can be hard for us to swallow. I think it should be hard for us to swallow. But as Christians, we, we, I think we, ha- not, we have to avoid having an unhealthy fixation on this. When we talked about earlier, this is not something that is like a central theme of any New Testament letter. It's not even brought up in a lot of books. It's a reality, but it's not the center of how we have to talk about what, you know, what God is doing in the world, right? what the gospel itself is. Okay, we can't make this sort of the center of our theology, pretending we know who will or won't to, you know, go down this path or what it will look like or anything like that. That's not our place. I think that's why it's talked about so little is it's really not our job to be talking about this. The stuff that we are told to focus on is the stuff that gets talked about all the time in the New Testament. And the truth is God's grace will and I think should surprise us. We should expect that. Instead, we ought to continue to pray the Lord's Prayer, not being distracted from it, but being committed to being made right ourselves more and more into the image of Jesus, growing deeper and more like him, purging ourselves of sin, and seeing that spread around us as much as we can, doing what we can to contribute to God making right the world again. Now, as we come to the end of the series here, um, I just want to like, uh, offer like a brief reflection on this whole idea of deconstruction. We kind of started off at the beginning, unpacking it. We've walked through all these different sort of you know, issues, and we didn't get to everything. There's a couple of things I would have loved to, to do a sermon on, and we just didn't really have time for it. Um, and, and, uh, but uh, I do want to offer sort of a, a last sort of re- reflection on it. We, we talked at the beginning about how deconstruction can be a good thing. Like God has actually used this uh, many times in the church. We talked about the Reformation. We talked about how the prophets are often challenging and deconstructing people's views of who God is and calling them to purify them so they might follow him in more truth. It's a good process for us to do. And sometimes, as we engage in this, we're going to have questions, and they're not going to get answered, and we're going to live with some tension, and that's, that's okay. And that's a good thing, because it keeps us humble, it keeps us in awe and mystery uh, over God, it keeps us from thinking we know every single piece of who God is, and we can go tell anyone every, every answer in the book. No, that is not who God is. God is something that is far beyond us, and when we live with questions uh, to things, we're acknowledging that. God is beyond us. God is, 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 in a sense, knowable, but in a sense, far beyond our ability to comprehend. And it keeps us as constant learners, constantly growing and learning what it means to follow Jesus. If we have a mindset where we think we know everything, we're going to stall out. We're going to stop growing. But if we're willing to live with the fact that we don't know a lot of things, it's going to keep us continually searching God out. And I think that's the posture we want to have as Christians, continually seeking to grow. But here's, here's one thing I do want to challenge, especially when it comes to having unresolved questions. Um, perhaps in this series we talked about something and uh, you sort of rethought something and, and you, you never rethought before, and, and you're sort of sitting like, oh, yeah, I'm not sure right now where I land on this thing. 
That's okay, but I want to challenge you to not seek to just stay in that place where you deconstruct, uh, not to having questions, but deconstruct to having indifference about having those questions. Having unresolved questions but, and just not really caring about growing or learning. I think that's a lot. I actually think more often um, when, I, when we see people deconstruct, they're not actually leaving the faith so much as I think they're kind of deconstructing to a place where they're just kind of indifferent. They're just kind of like, yeah, I don't know what I think about the church. I'm not going to really engage that much in the church. I'm not sure what I think about scripture, so I'm going to quit reading it. I'm not sure what I think about, about Jesus, so I'm not going to kind of continue to grow uh, very much like him. What you're doing is you're asking these questions that get to, to a point where you just don't care. And I want to really challenge you against that. Okay? Remember in the first time we talked about deconstructing as kind of like building a house, right? And, and sometimes we, we do need to tear down parts of the house, but for the purpose of rebuilding it back up again. And we talked about our, the importance of when we rebuild to go to Jesus and to rebuild around him. I think a lot of times we might do that, but we find we have different parts of our house that are unfinished, right? And we just are kind of content with it. We just kind of, you know, like a room that you started painting a year ago and you just haven't gotten back to it because you just don't really care that much. You don't really have plans to finish it. You think, I'll get back to that someday. You know, maybe when I have time, I'll go to that thing, but it's really not something I care that much about, okay? And, and you know, the house is still livable. You can still spend time in it, but it's not something you want to invite other people to um, and, and, and the reason is because you you're not really that interested in making it feel like that. And I want to challenge you against, uh, against that mindset. Care about the house that you're rebuilding around Jesus. Okay? Don't, be, don't leave parts of your house unfinished, not because you're not sure what you want to do with it, right? You know, you, you, or because you're, you're not sure how to, how to make it look specifically because you just don't care about getting to it because you're not inviting anyone in there and you're not even spending that much time in it yourself. No, we should care about this. Don't deconstruct to a place where you're indifferent. Instead, care about rebuilding this more and more around Jesus. And, you know, the series is coming to an end, and I've really enjoyed it. I think we've had a lot of great conversation. The Q&R that you guys have been sending every week has been a ton of fun uh, to sort of interact with, and rec- we've recorded videos during the week. Um, and I know in community groups there's been great conversation. Um, and we want to keep that going, all right? We want to help you continue to kind of continue to rebuild around Jesus. And so... Um, Continue to use your community groups like that, but actually next, this, this coming spring semester, we're not entirely sure when we're going to start this, but we're going to be doing something called Alpha, which is a, a place for people to kind of come. Um, there is some content that's delivered, but then it's just really conversation around it. Um, so if you're interested in continuing this conversation, continuing to grow, continuing to, to rebuild or maybe deconstruct but, and then rebuild back around Jesus, just keep that in mind. Or if you know someone you think might be interested in that, keep, keep Alpha in mind. And always remember, Julie and I, we're always willing to talk about this stuff with you guys too, okay? So please don't be afraid uh, to seek us out. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll do some Q&R. Lord, um, thank you that you do something about evil, that we don't have to live in a world where um, those who perpetuate evil um, can just go on doing it especially when they have maybe the power, the resources to continue to get away with it. Um, Thank you that you hold us accountable for the ways in which we add to that, that we vandalize your shalom in the world, God. I pray that you would help us to, to know more and more how we can continue to grow like your son, but have hope that you are restoring us, you're making us new, and that ultimately you care about more about making your world right than we ever could, God. Help us to find hope and joy in the midst of that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so now, uh, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, I think, so I apologize, but we're going to do some Q&R. So for people who submitted questions on the website, Julie's going to ask a couple, and I'll give my best response to them. Yeah, okay, the first question is just a clarification. Um, still some confusion around, like, what is heaven? So if you could briefly summarize it in a, like a specific way, as, as specific as you can. <laughs> yeah, so heaven is God's space, okay? I think that's, it's not like a spiritual home, it's God's presence or his space. And God, you know, he doesn't dwell in our midst, like we can't go to God's house right now. Heaven, God's space, is, is other to the world that we live in right now, okay? But um, 
the, the goal is for God's presence or his space to come to earth. And ultimately, uh, and I didn't read the whole chapter in Revelation 21, but there's this vision of God's sort of glory, like powering all of reality. Like we don't need the sun anymore, it says, because God's presence is literally the light that we walk by, right? So heaven is about where God's presence is actually at. And so even when you, when you read like uh, um, passages in the Old Testament about the temple uh, in Israel's history, like they used heaven language. They saw it as an overlap between heaven and earth. Okay, that's why it was treated with so much reverence as it was, and it's why they had, uh, had pictures uh, and statues of different like cherubim and some of the, the angels that surrounded God in his uh, heavenly court. They had those in the temple because they saw it as a place where God's presence was actually in a space and therefore heaven on earth, literally God's space overlapping with the present. Now, the church is called the temple because the idea is that God, uh, his presence is with us, but ultimately God's presence will be in the whole world and heaven and earth will come together completely in one space. So I hope that's helpful. I think that's a better in to think about heaven than just kind of a, a spiritual place. Great. Okay, um, this next question is, again, a clarification. Uh, you talked a little bit about the church's failures and how ultimately God will use them for good or remake them in different ways. Um, the question is, does that make those failures a good thing? And so maybe speak to people who are, who are in that grieving space where they have experienced or they have mm-hmm. seen things in church that, and they're maybe not quite ready to move to the, to the good. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this is a reality which, like, again, I mean, this is the vision, the ideal for the church, but it's never the, oh, you have to just accept that any church you're in or any space that you've been in um, in church is that, and you just need to sort of get on board with it. That's not true. The, the, the need for heaven to come to earth finally and fully in Jesus is, is a reminder of the fact that the church does fail at this. And so if you've experienced the failure of the church to live this out, um, first of all, I just want to comfort you and say, you've not experienced something that uh, you know, no one else has. Like the church is, is deg- many degrees away from what, it, it, you know, what heaven will be like when it comes to earth. Um, but because it is still the place where God overlaps, I mean, uh, the hope is that you can find healing, maybe in a different church, um, but still in the church in the presence of God for ways you've been hurt um, by the church. Um, and I think, uh, you know, God's spirit is active. It's, it's moving um, in, in different ways. And find where the spirit is moving and find, you know, in the church where God's spirit is moving and assume that, you know, restoration will come from that. I know it's kind of vague. I hope that's, I hope that, <laughs> I hope I'm speaking to what uh, you're asking there. And I know, again, this language of following the Spirit and, and, and being guided by the Spirit, um, I know it's a hard one. We're actually going to do a series uh, in next spring semester, starting in, at the end of January, beginning of February, on like being in the presence of God, being restored by the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit. We're going to really dig deep into that topic uh, in, the, in the coming um, winter here. So, um, yeah, <laughs> seek that out, and, and we're hoping to get to that a little bit more. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, so we would say it's not good that yes. bad things happen. The, mm-hmm. Those are still sin, and we would still look at that and say, mm-hmm. like, God is grieved by that, and, yes. and we are grieved by that. And, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and we should sit in that if, if you're still in that space, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Great. Definitely not, con- by talking about the church as God's, you know, as heaven on earth, not condoning much of what happens in the church. Um, I think we should, that should give us reason to condemn it because it falls so short of the standard of what is expected in the church. Great. Cool. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate uh, your questions as always. Um, if there are any more, we'll get to them later this week in a, in a YouTube video, me and Julie.